Today on episode two of the High Performance Leadership Podcast, we're talking to Ken Busby, a leader in the arts and nonprofit world for over two decades. It is having the right team, having having the right people in the right positions, uh, hiring the right people so that they have enough intuition, enough sense of, of who they are, what needs to be done, and the mission of the organization to then deliver that and make it happen. You're listening to the High Performance Leadership Podcast, insights and information from world-class leadership experts. Thanks again for joining us. I'm Randy Lane. Before starting this podcast, I lived in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And for those not familiar with the city, it's quickly become a mecca for arts and music in the state. One of the people at the center of that transformation is Ken Busby. Ken led an effort to build the Hardesty Art Center, a gallery, studio, and classroom complex for Tulsa's artists. It's an anchor for the larger Brady Arts District, an area that now boasts several galleries, creative arts spaces, and live music venues. Ken talks with us about his leadership style and how to motivate people. 360 Solutions staff member Ryan McCormick also joins us for the interview. And now, here's our talk with Ken Busby. Kind of tell me about your professional background. So I spent most of my life in nonprofits because I, I my first job was with American Airlines. I was in uh, vendor relations and contract services, which did the hardware and software contract negotiations for American Airlines. I realized there that I, I could be a cog in a wheel for the rest of my career, climbing up step, half step here, half step there, and never really make the kind of impact that I knew I could in a nonprofit setting. Long story short, I wound up going to Gilcrease Museum. I was there for eight years, membership director, director of communication, and then assistant director before I left there. Uh, went to Tulsa Zoo Friends, uh, was development director, and then 12, 12 and a half years as executive director and CEO of the Arts and Humanities Council of Tulsa, having then done a capital campaign and built the Hardesty Arts Center. Okay, what, what can I do next? Route 66 Alliance pops in and a chance to do another construction project. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> but, um, but seriously, but it was a chance to work with Seltzer Schaefer Architects awesome. who had done the Hardesty Art Center, and I love them. And I thought – I never thought I'd have another opportunity to do that. And I was like, okay, to work with them, to work with the Ross Group who's going to do our construction, working with Downstream Media out of Portland, Oregon, who's done like 60 of the Fortune 100 companies, the design centers that they have in their corporate headquarters to showcase what they do and how they do it. And so it's like, this is a great team. And working with Michael Wallace, who is the voice of the sheriff in Cars and historian of Route 66, and I get to work with Cy Avery's grandson, Stevens Avery. And Cy was the father of Route 66, who's the reason that Route 66 came through Tulsa originally. You know, And it was just like, what, what a cool opportunity. So that's, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing, and that's how I've spent my career. Let's talk about your previous role at the Arts and Humanities. Can you kind of tell me about that experience? Sure. Everything. <laughs> a CEO or an executive director, whichever title, in a nonprofit world does everything. But our main focus is fundraising. We're the schmoozer. We're the one that brings it all together and is the face of the organization, good, bad, or otherwise. Nonprofits really need that, though. And, and you need a point person to go to. In fact, so executive director in the for-profit world doesn't mean a lot to people. So that's why a lot of us have started doing the thing where we become executive director and CEO because people know what a CEO is. It's the <laughs> same role. But it's like, okay, I get it. That's what you're, you're, the, you're the main guy. You're the one we need to talk to. And so uh, that has just facilitated a lot for the nonprofit world. So the Arts Humanities Council, we were all about arts education. And, and we had been around since 1961. That's when we were founded uh, in a beautiful historic mansion in, in Tulsa along Riverside Drive. And then, but the, when I was hired, 
uh, and I think this is what you're sort of getting to, the board said to me, you know, Ken, we're here, we're doing these great programs, uh, Artists in the Schools and Harwell Institute and all of it, but nobody knows who we are. They know our programs but have no idea who the Arts and Humanities Council of Tulsa is. And I said, well, I can fix that. And, and I said, so what you're going to have to do, though, is I'm going to have to serve on a lot of boards and get really involved in the community. And we're going to do this and we're going to do that and so forth. And the board was always very supportive and, and, and all about that. But the building of the Hardesty Arts Center was nowhere on our radar when I was first hired. Uh, that had been something that somebody told me, well, maybe we should have a visual arts center someday. That would really raise our profile. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. And then when I got looking at it and, uh, and expanded our convention center, but that's where we really first started getting the thought that, hey, maybe, maybe a visual arts center is what we need to do. Maybe that is the answer for Tulsa and something that's needed. Did lots of work, and as I always joked, it you know took us nine years to become an overnight success. Uh, <laughs> but, but nine years later, after we started talking about it, we had opened in December of 2012 the Hardesty Arts Center, and that really changed our profile. All of a sudden, everybody knew us. But it was—I say that not everybody, but a lot of people did. But it was—we became then the go-to organization. That's really what I did for the Arts Council up to that point was really make us participated in the Tulsa Regional Chamber, uh, got involved with Rotary, did all of the things that I could do to raise our profile to say, hey, we're out here, we're the arts, we're the ones. So I got to be the like lone arts person put on every freaking committee, you know, in Tulsa because, oh, Ken will do it, Ken will, Ken will get it together, Ken will bring it together, Ken will represent the arts. And so, and that was fine. And, and But what's funny is that since I've left the council, I'm still doing that. Uh, because I think my per- my personality, as you can tell from this interview, is just larger than life, and I and I like that role. I never met a stage I didn't like. I never met a mic I didn't like. Because I have a great passion for our city and a great passion for the arts and education. And it's like, what can we do to make a difference? Because we need to be moving forward. So talk about the the building that you guys built and where you built it. And- sure. As we started looking at where we might build something like this in Tulsa, we looked at the Brady Arts District. One of us, the Brady Arts District, it had the name. It was like, okay, but not a lot going. Going on there. There was the Tulsa Artist Coalition. Uh, there was a spaghetti warehouse, and they had identified that place a long time ago, and that was cool, but still not much development. There was this empty warehouse uh, that the homeless people enjoyed. And uh, so we started looking at that, and I said, if we were to do something like this, you know, what would it look like? So we started looking for architects. We settled on Seltzer Schaefer. We started designing, we, and we were able to acquire the west half of the Matthews Warehouse, 40,000 square feet. And so this was great. And then the George Kaiser Family Foundation got the opportunity to have the Woody Guthrie collection, but he didn't want to build a new building, so he wanted our building. Well, okay. So then we got to do work with Seltzer Schaefer a second time and design another building. So we built next to it and built this four-story, beautiful core 10 steel uh, Hardesty Art Center, classroom space, gallery space, studio space, and the classroom space, 2D, 3D, 4D galleries space. We designed, though, and really lift up the arts as economic development. And, of course, education. It was it was really, I think it was a pivotal moment. And I always appreciated George Kaiser for saying, once the Arts and Humanities Council identified Brady, we started looking at Brady and what could we do? What else could we bring to the table? Kaiser always gave us credit for that. But then it was great because what they could bring to the table and how much more they could then do to really enhance the district uh, has been great. So they've added a park with Guthrie Green and they've been adding housing and renovating buildings to provide apartments and they've worked with Teach for America. So the Brady has now become the hot place uh, to be. And first Friday, our crawls will see 
easily 2,000, sometimes three or 4,000 people, depending on how the weather is, on, on one Friday night. If you don't make a reservation for dinner, you won't get in. And so that's a cool problem to have. But for the council then, it really set us up into a whole new level and allowed us to take all of our programming, all of our education outreach to a whole new level. So I would say without, I mean, you're a piece of a, of a larger puzzle, but without the arts and humanities realizing that you need a place to focus the artistic culture and the, the community of Tulsa, mm-hmm. the arts, the Brady arts really wouldn't be what it is today. That, that's really true. Yeah. You sum that up very nicely. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me, you know, you're working in nonprofits and you're working, um, it's probably a very challenging environment to be a leader. How do you approach leadership in regards to the arts and humanities and stuff like that? I think all leaders, each one has his or her own individual style. I have my preferred choice, which is the laissez-faire approach. I want to hire the best professional quality staff that I can hire and then let them go do their job. I don't want to micromanage. I don't want to hold their hand. I certainly provide training, if you will. That's not quite the right word. Certainly answering questions. Someone's new to the team, whatever. But hopefully they'll have enough background experience and so forth that they can feel empowered to then go and do what needs to be done to fulfill the mission of the organization or whatever. And I, I'm not just saying this to, to to brag, but my director of the Hardesty Arts Center that I hired, Kathy McCrees, she has now gone on, is now running, the, is now the director of uh, One Away Contemporary, also in the Brady, which is cool. But Kathy said to me one time, we were having lunch and we had both left the council. And she said, you know, the thing that I loved about you was every time you hired staff, when you hired me or whatever, you just empowered us to do our thing and to feel like we were making a contribution too. And she said, and then you never took credit for anything. I have been, and I, I feel good about that. I, it is a team effort and my team makes me look good. And sure, I'm the one that has to be out there and, and so forth, but I'm also the one that that says we screwed up and I made a mistake or whatever. And I also take the hits for that. So the person at the top always is that it's both. They get praise, but they also get criticism. But I I would always try to shield my staff from that. And I would be the one to take uh, the hit, you know, it's like, and I know this is just a small example, but we do a thing called the uh, Harwalden Awards and we honor people, individuals and corporations and foundations in the community each year that do good things in the arts and help support the arts and so forth. And my first year we were at, I had just been hired. The awards were already set. It was like two weeks later as I came on board. And so we're at the Gilcrease Museum and so forth. And we had tables of eight and 10. Don't ask me why, but we did. And so we get there and the layout of the room is not what we had all drawn and worked with the caterer on. So my, my my staff is putting out table numbers and everything, not realizing that the tables have shifted. They just missed it. So all of a sudden, we're trying to get ready to start, and I've got these people standing. I've got some partial empty tables. I've got people standing that don't have a place to sit, and we figure out what you know what's going on. We finally get it figured out, and so my staff's running around trying to get them seated and get to the right table. We get it all done, and so I stand up. Now, this is my first introduction, really, to a lot of these people. So I stand up at the podium and I say, good afternoon, I'm Ken Busby, the new executive director of the Arts and Humanities Council. Also, I want to welcome you here and I want to begin today with an apology. <laughs> uh, and I said, I don't understand table numbers. And apparently I just will randomly put table numbers on things and, and, and apparently they don't match up with where people are supposed to sit. And I said, I'm really sorry about that. I said, but you know, if this is the biggest mistake I ever made, we'll be okay. Everyone laughs, of course, and so forth. People are coming up to me afterwards saying, this is the best Harwell Awards we've ever been to. This was great. And my staff just thinks this is awesome because it was it was not my fault, but it was just like, you just disarmed everyone and, and just made it work. I'm like, that's what I do. That is the skill that I have learned. How do I make it all work so we all feel good about it and nobody gets upset and we just all go forward together? Uh, that is my style. So it's like we're all in this together. 
sure, I'm the head of it, so I'll take the the heat and so forth. And yes, I get a lot of praise, but I'm always quick to then say, my staff did this, and we did this as a team, and it's a it's a group effort. And you also said that you you know you empower your employees. Do you have any other sort of uh, techniques you used in order to make people feel more a part of the overall vision and to help them communicate with each other better? As much as I hate them. Uh, staff meetings are critically important and then letting everybody speak. So I would do staff meetings. I like to do them just once a month, but I but I learned to where every couple of weeks was even better. So I would do that. Uh, Try to keep them short relatively, but let people come in and then tell us what each person was doing. Each area of whatever it was, whether it was education or the technical side or this, that, and the other, and and how did it all relate and what was coming up in the next couple of weeks that we're going to need to be working on. And I'm and so that gave each person a voice and everybody got to hear what the other people were doing. Mm-hmm. They might not know or might not realize or might not in some ways care because like, oh, this is happening too. Oh, by that person doing that, this, it allows me to do that. And then I would also take that opportunity to say, okay, and we've got this major event coming up, so it's going to be all hands on deck. We're going to have to all pull together. So for these two days, I know Lauren, who was doing PR marketing, uh, is going to need our help to do X, Y, and Z. Let's just you know put everything else aside, guys. Let's get on this, make it happen. And, and so I would always stress this idea of supporting each other. The other thing that I've always done, and I think really does help, it's, it's the idea of uh, walking the walk. So for events and so forth, I would set up tables and chairs. I would help put out centerpieces. I would help, you know, whatever needed to be done, proofing stuff, whatever. No job too big, too small. Because if others see you doing that, it's like, oh, wow, if he does this, then maybe I should do that. I pick up trash as I'm walking. I'm like, don't walk over the trash, pick up the trash and let's throw it out. You know, it, you didn't put it there, but do it anyway. And I think, you know, I've seen, I've seen Walt Helmrich do that. I've seen uh, the director of the museum uh, when I first went, or when I was uh, assistant director, uh, but Brooks Joyner at, at Gilcrease Museum always did that, always pitched in and so forth. And it's amazing because I would have, to, I think back to Gilcrease, I would have staff say to me, you can get the custodial staff to do anything for you. And I'm like, sure. They see me helping set up tables and chairs. When I come in on Mondays, I ask how their kids are, ask how their weekend was, da-da-da-da-da. And I said, I treat them like human beings. So that I said, so anytime I need something, and there would be times when I absolutely had no time to help do something. I said, guys, I've got to have this set up. I can't help it. I'm really sorry, but could you do this? And they would bend over backwards to get it just right for me. Mm-hmm. But it's just like, but it's, it's recognizing people. It's treating them as equals and it's treating them as human beings. I mean, that's, it sounds so simple, but it's like people, that hierarchical thing only goes so far. And there's and there's so many companies live by that hierarchy, you know. And I, I think personally, I mean, I don't I don't function well in that environment. Treat me like a human being. Ask me nicely, uh, and I'll I'll do anything in the world for you. Just the limited time I've known you, I've always been like. Ken's a cool guy. I was telling I was telling people here, I don't specifically don't put my birthday on Facebook because I don't want the people who are going to just say happy birthday because they saw it. Right. You know, I rarely will say happy birthday to people, too, because I think it's kind of cheap. It feels like if you really want to talk to somebody on your birthday, like reach out to them. And right. we really haven't interacted that often. But you were like, hey, I have it on my calendar that it's your birthday. So happy birthday. <laughs> Just a quick thing on Facebook, like I think that's kind of who you are and probably your your leadership style, which is just to kind of remember, remember those details to make people feel yeah. like they're worth something. Uh-huh. Exactly. You know, treat people like you want to be treated. It's, and, it, it's so simple. So Ryan hasn't seen it, but when I see the Arts and Humanity building in, in downtown, I think that's such a huge thing and such <laughs> a vision to have be able to put that all together. From a leadership perspective, how did you kind of 
have that vision and then execute on it? And what kind of like challenge did you did you have on such a large project like that? Yes, I swore I would never do anything like that ever again. Um, <laughs> because it was uh, for people that do that on a regular basis. It's like wow, it's um, it was it was daunting. I will say uh, in that case, hi- having a good staff, which was great. I hired uh, a director of that facility before we ever opened, so that she could actually help do all of that and help manage that whole. Cons- Construction process, construction manager, and then, um, but hiring the right architect too. If you're if if you're going to build a building, if you're going to have to do this, you've got to have the right architect. Uh, because the thing I love about Seltzer Schaefer is they never designed they designed a building for us, but the the shape and look of the building didn't happen until well into the process. It was how do you need this building to function? What are the elements that need to happen if if this building is going to be successful? Mm. And as we honed that and said we need this and so forth, then the square footage started coming together and then beautiful structure came that doesn't look anything like I ever thought a visual arts center would look like. And yet it's totally what a visual arts center should look like. And it was totally perfect in the in the district, in the space, and serves us well and will serve us for the next 50, 100 years because it was so well placed, situated, crafted, designed, and all of that. So it is having the right team, having having the right people in the right positions that's critical. And then again, hiring the right people so that they have enough intuition, enough sense of of who they are, what needs to be done, and the mission of the organization to then deliver that and make it happen. And then, again, as I said about communicating with each other, having those kinds of meetings, uh, staff meetings, so everyone's speaking to each other and knows what everyone else is dealing with and how they all interact and how what this one does impacts what that one does. And so, oh, and then they begin to see the bigger picture. And it sounded like you knew your strengths were to be out there championing this idea and raising funds for it. And then, you, but you found somebody that you knew would be good at actually like managing the space and put them in place. Absolutely. Because that's not my strength. I know what my strengths are. I can do details and that's fine. Uh, but my details, even then, so like you're talking about the, the birthday analogy, it's those kinds of things. I do remember those kinds of things. I try to note those kinds of things. And that makes people feel really special. When I just pick up the phone or drop a card to someone or those little connection points is what makes people feel really good and really special and makes me feel good too that I brightened their day or, or, or gave them a positive nod or, or a pat on the back kind of thing. But the actual grinding this stuff out like people have to do and it has to be done is not my strength. So I hired those people to do that. I can read a balance sheet. I can I can look at figures and do that. It's like, okay, but somebody else put those numbers in the columns and make it all work over here. <laughs> I'll go raise the money. You you figure out how we're going to spend it. You're the, the perfect trailblazer archetyped. We were talking about like the different types. You have like the trailblazer and you have the manager and you have the uh, the architect, the person that brings it all together. And mm-hmm. I can definitely see that you're the trailblazer type, the guy who says, we have this idea. We're not quite sure how to get to work, but let's start off in this direction. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And we'll figure it out along the way. Until it <laughs> that's right. We know it's a good idea. We know where we're going. Our founder does a lot of work with nonprofits and stuff, and I know they can be challenging. How do you manage people or lead people when they're, you're in a situation where they may be part-time or volunteer and you're trying to kind of make this force move together as one? That's when you bring out the alcohol. <laughs> I'm not ashamed to admit it. Uh, keeping a bottle handy sometimes just really helps. Um, no, I, I'm sort of joking. Uh, 50%. 50%. That's right. That's right. I think I have two books in me that I, I need to write. One, The Care and Feeding of Board Members. And the second one is The, the Care and Feeding of Volunteers. Because even though board members are volunteers also, they, 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 they require different sets of skills to, to negotiate. Um, 
when you are working with part-time people and volunteers, it is very different because they don't necessarily have the, the same drive. Sometimes, sometimes volunteers have more drive than your staff, even the, the full-time paid staff, because they've got all this time that they can just devote to you and, and they can be excited about your organization and they can engage uh, with the organization and so forth. So the thing you have to do is manage expectations. Mm-hmm. You have uh, job duties and assignments just like you do staff, and, and then you have to praise them a lot and recognize their contribution, that it makes a difference to your organization. And then if you do have, just like you can have a bad hire, you can have a bad volunteer or somebody that hasn't got the right personality or isn't meshing with or upsets either staff or other volunteers and so forth. And that's when you have to have the sit down with them and say, okay, I don't think this is working quite right. And so here's what we're seeing. And can you fix this or can you correct something to make it work here? And if it's not, can we find something else for you to do? And then if you really can't do it, then you just have to sort of exit them stage left <laughs> for the good of the organization. That's an appropriate uh, analogy based that you're in the arts and stuff. <laughs> that's what I try to do. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> Tie it up. I'm always, man, I'm always thinking. No, but, uh, but, but, you, but you raise a good point. Even with part-time employees, especially, you know, you, you value them, you make them part of the organization, you make sure you're inviting them and, and set your meetings and so forth so that they can be there, that you're not, you know, that you're always in, and if you do an outside event, that you take them with you, that you set it at a time that they can be there, hey, we want you at this, or we're having a little happy hour, we're all going to get together. Although I will say this too, and, and I'm being serious, I, I don't fraternize with staff much. Mm-hmm. Uh, the group lunch, the group lunch thing, that's fine. Do that occasionally. Do potlucks, let people bring in, especially if, they, if you've got a team that can cook well. That's always fun to share. Doing the, the one-on-one going out and so forth, I don't, I don't do that because you still have to have that relationship that's professional. I think you have to be careful of that because people will see it differently or how come he's going out with so-and-so and didn't go out with me mm-hmm. or how come this and that and is there is there favoritism and people think there's favoritism it's like you can just avoid all of that by just not doing it you've hired a lot of people you've put a lot of people in places and i'm sure right now you're probably looking for people to fill certain roles in your organization what do you look for in somebody what's a a good leader look like to you oh that's a good question you're gonna love this one i think the main thing I do when I when I hire anybody, doesn't matter for what position, I ask somewhere during the interview there will be this question, and that is, if I come into your office, your cubicle, your whatever, and I start singing a song, will you join me? The ones that say to me, sure, I'll join, are the ones I hire. <laughs> and I have yet to be wrong in a hire that I did that with. So it's, and, and it's, it's this idea of, of something that they're not expecting, something spontaneous, Da, 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 da. And what's the reaction going to be? The ones that say to me, oh, you don't want to hear me sing. I said, I didn't ask if you sang well. I'm one of my favorite people at, uh, at Gilchrist Museum, uh, I had, I jokingly, she was not in my department, but we were on the same floor together, and I called her my muse because I would sing, she would sing. She would sing, and we'd sing in the halls, and the others would join. But, but it, she was, I, I did, I called her my muse because it was just sort of this great experience. It's the people that say, no, I, I wouldn't do that. They're too rigid. They're too, they're not able to just go with the flow. And you, we all know how bad job interviews are. And, and then they try to ask you the killer questions. What are your weaknesses? You know, what's the one thing that you're, you're worst at and so forth? And, um, and so you try to avoid the killer questions. You try to rephrase them and answer them like a politician would. That that idea of the fun question. That's uh, so. I just love to see the reaction. Mm-hmm. I love to see the response. And but those that say, "Sure, I'll join." What do you want to say? They're going to be good because they're they're willing to be able to think quickly, think on their feet, just respond 
accordingly and and handle whatever's com- coming along. That would be my response. I'd be like, are you – so harmony, am I going to go high or am I going to go low? What are we doing here? I do. I'd hire you in a heartbeat. See, that's, 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 I do. I do. So I was reading some of your bio. Even though I met you, I just wanted to see if there was anything I hadn't seen before. And I saw that you do consulting a little bit. One of the things that was interesting to me is you do strategic planning with companies. So can you kind of tell me what – Maybe not an exact example of like what kind of things you would do and what's included in your plan usually. Strategic planning, I always joke, it's sort of like email. It's the bane of our existence. Nobody wants to do it because you spend, you know, six weeks, it could be a couple weeks, you come up with a plan, the board blesses it, and then it sits on a shelf, mm-hmm. never to be seen again. Until it's time because you did a three to five year plan, it's time to do it again, and somebody wants to know if you have a plan. Oh, we've got to update our plan and we do it again. And we do it and we exercise and we put it on a shelf. So I try to write plans that are are short and succinct. And I try to help them understand that they then – it has to be a plan that everyone, not only everyone buys into, but that everyone really references almost on a daily basis. That you really are looking so that you – because a good strategic plan helps you really map the direction you're going to go and helps everyone know – the jobs that need to be done and the and the duties that need to be fulfilled. And it allows you, when people come to you, because I'm sure you get this all the time too, I've got a great idea. What we need to do is, yeah, but that's 360 degrees from where we are right now. And we, we'd have to add staff and more money and so forth. Well, that might be a great idea, but it doesn't really fulfill our mission. So you can say nicely to someone, um, great idea. Probably not the best time for us because here's where our here's what we've said is our strategic mission and vision and where we're going over the next three years. Mm-hmm. So it really allows you to say yes to things and no to things much more easily. But you've got to reference it and you've got to have it there in front of you and talk about it daily. The key components are are also then what the organization needs, like its areas of finances. Is it fundraising in, in those terms? Is it uh, programming? So we look at those areas that they really need help on. But one of the things that I always do, just when I'm talking about staff meetings, is I give a group, especially if I sense a lot of tension in the, in the group, uh, I give them all a chance to write on sticky notes the key problem that they see with the organization. Tell me if you could fix one thing in this organization or improve one thing, what would it be? And I take those and I get them all. I said, just write them. And then I mix them all up and I randomly put them on a board and then I, I share them with everybody. Mm. But they have no idea. I let them bring it to me over a break so that nobody knows who gave me what. And I do all the things and da 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 da. And I put it up there and I, and I group them myself a little bit to sort of see where it is. And it's like, okay, guys, in this particular instance, I see that lack of communication, nobody seems to know what anyone else is doing or what their primary focus is. I mean, if this is coming out, then that's where I will then direct our attention and really spend the time. Because if we can get this area fixed that everyone says is a problem, that's going to help the rest of the organization do what it's supposed to be doing. Yeah. And I think it's important to ask that question individually and not give them a direction and be like, so we're going to, we have some issues, right? Communications one, isn't it? For sure. I, I think so. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. I, I mean, I always try to meet with the organizers ahead of time and let them tell me what they think the key issues are that they want to address because I want to hear them. But I said, but I'm going to let the employees and the staff and everyone tell me what they think too. Mm-hmm. I hear what you're saying. 
And if one tells me, you know, we've got a really big issue here, if I don't hear that from the staff, I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. Mm. So then I have to figure out how to how to make it work for both of them because administration's seen it one way, but the employees are seeing it another way. That's interesting. It's, again, trying to help people think but ha- have their voice be heard uh, because people don't want to think they've also spent their time doing a strategic plan, doing retreats, all this to them, and nobody listened and we're doing the same thing we were yesterday that we did today that we'll do tomorrow because nobody really cares. I really try to make sure that when we finish, we've got a product that everyone feels they're a part of, that their issues, their voices were heard, and that we have a plan that we're all embracing and we're all in lockstep going together to get it done. When you're working with companies, I guess communication is, is like one of the probably the biggest things that are is dysfunctional within a company or needs to be corrected. What other things do you see in companies that you go in and try and change or help them with that you see the biggest difference? Getting a company like a bank, we won't name which bank, but getting a company like a bank to be less hierarchical, and that just isn't in their DNA anywhere. This first vice president reports to the second vice president the second surprise or whatever it is, you know, and they and they do this and there is safety in it for people. But it's OK. And, let, and let's go from bank for a minute. Uh, but let's look also at like a uh, city government structure. That is probably the most mind numbing work that anyone can ever do because because I have to deal with them a lot, especially in the planning department. So when you're doing for construction, and you have to get permits and so forth. And it's like and this person has this responsibility, this one little thing right here that they have to do. They don't do anything beyond that. They don't think beyond that. They're not looking at a bigger picture or how they can go with something else. They are. It, there are so many silos in that structure. Uh, and and it's, it's hard to overcome them, but, but those departments that are willing to let people be empowered and have a thought on their own and share that thought and say, hey, there is a better way to do this. We can do X, Y, and Z. It's great when that can happen. For most parts in, in major, major big corporations, all you can really do is, is, is work in a department. You're not going to change the whole makeup of the banking industry, but you can get a department that actually starts working together and all of a sudden they're feeling better about each other and they're actually talking to each other and and they figured out ways that they can communicate and let so and so know what they're doing over here and how that would help them if, if they could know this and so you you make the smaller incremental changes where you can i always think about the movie nine to five and the changes but dolly parton lily tomlin <laughs> the other one jane fonda but it was this whole idea of a very rigid unhappy workforce that just did what they were supposed to do and then these three ladies come in and through a series of are able to make changes all of a sudden people can have photos out on their ta- on their uh, of their children on their desks and flowers and all of a sudden they paint and it's not just cockamamie gray all the way it's mm-hmm. it's and so and and the whole attitude changes so you know and 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 things really do start at the top so if you have if you can get somebody that's willing to say you know we've done it this way but we're going to try something else here all of a sudden it's like whoa there's a new way to look at the world and it's okay to be different and it's okay to try it a different way. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that trickles down pretty quickly. But if you just let people have that chance to be heard, to, to have their idea, you know, it's like, Hey, I, we haven't tried it that way, but that's interesting. Let's, let's give that a shot. Let's, let's see if this will work for us. Mm-hmm. And then you do it. It's like, wow, that was great. Well, we'll, we'll just start. That'll be our new practice. That's how we're going to do this. It's back to that empowering thing. And, the, and, and for people to think they, they can make a difference. Mm-hmm. People want to believe that what they do makes a difference, I think, for the most part. But I think also, and, 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 I, and I, I was being a little unkind to, uh, to the city government, but I think you, you really do when you have to deal with them on, on any kind of basis. You really do see, I'm not empowered to do anything. I have this parameter. This is my job. This is my work. I go in at 8. I leave at 5. I have an hour for lunch. 
And I do the same thing day in, day out for the rest of my life. I would shoot myself. Um, <laughs> Because I, you know, I, I have no idea day to day. I guess I have meetings, I have schedule, I have certain things, but I have something different every day, and things just happen. And and in the nonprofit world, you really have to just be really, really flexible mm-hmm. and be able to change on a moment's notice and say, "Oh, we're going this way now. Okay, we're going to go that way. Let's go." And so, uh, giving that uh, flexibility to people really makes a difference. It makes them feel like, "Hey." What I'm doing really makes a difference, and I'm 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 adaptable, and and it's appreciated, and and we're flexible, and and some and somebody notices, and somebody cares. So you work with companies, and I'm sure you've come across a company or two that have done things in a traditional way, and they need to kind of transition to a new way of doing things, but they're kind of like, uh, it's a very painful transition because this is what we've always done. How would you kind of help them through that situation? Baby steps. Don't try to change it all overnight. Hmm. It's like turning, you know, turning an aircraft carrier. You can you can begin the turn, but it's not going to happen instantly. We can't turn on a dime. Since it is going to be painful, and we've done it this way for the last 75 years, and now you're saying that the world has changed and we've got to adapt to it hmm. and be more flexible, more nimble, more whatever. And those are the companies that succeed. Uh, well, one of two things happen. You can just close the doors because they're not able to change. And that does happen. Sometimes companies can't. And boom, they're done. Okay? For those that can figure out a way to be nimble and so forth, but you don't make them do it overnight. You say, okay, well, let's take this step here and get to this point, and and then let's take another look. Okay, and now we've done that, and let's go to here, and we'll do this. But I, I and baby steps may not be the best analogy, but I, I really think that's it. You have to, it's like you have to walk or crawl before you can walk. You know all those things. So, uh, but but if people see progress, that's when you'll be successful. So uh, you do one thing, and you make this change, and we see the results of it, and it was positive, and we brought everyone along, and we're all looking around, or like, okay, we made that one. Okay, well, okay, we need to do a little more now, so let's let's add this element and see how that worked because, you know, uh, success builds upon success. Right. So if we did this and made it work and we were all okay, now we can do this. And, okay, we've done it twice. Okay, this is working. Now let's do this. And so we, you just, you know, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? So, uh, but, I, I, but I think you have to do it in stages. Otherwise, because it, it, the wholesale change can sometimes just shock the system until, oh, never mind. Uh, we, you know, we can't do it. Going from an easy listening station to an acid rock station at a <laughs> Uh, overnight with the same personnel, pro- and certainly the same on-air personalities, probably not going to work. <laughs> that's a good analogy. Just, I've never heard that one before. Really? Oh, cool. <laughs> of course you have. But, that's uh, but, it's, but it's really true. Yeah. I'll be honest. I, I, just listening to you talk, I, I harken back and think to the times that in other jobs that I've had, uh, the thing that has always seemed to help me uh, really get behind a leader is when I do see them leveraging the strengths of those around them, mm-hmm. uh, as well as uh, seeing and championing those things that the other people do well, accepting you know responsibility when something goes wrong. And I'm I don't know I I look at it and I say wow this is this is a guy that 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 is up there and is doing that on a consistent basis. It makes me happy for America. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't know where I'm going with it, um, but yeah, just just kind of listening to 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 you talk through it, it, it makes a lot of sense. The way that that people prefer to be treated, people want to know that that they're that they're seen as human beings, and being able to leverage that and and it sounds it could be it feels like you could be manipulating somebody if you didn't mean it, but I feel like there's a genuineness to you, and you mean that stuff, and I think that's great. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, my 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 motto is always be sincere, even when you don't mean it. Uh, <laughs> I like that. That will get you. 
everyone. I appreciate your comments because I really am genuine about it. I, I'm really not trying to manipulate someone. Mm-hmm. I just want them to be the best they can be mm-hmm. and, and help our organization be the best it can be. And right. if everyone feels good and is happy about it, then then all the better. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can lead by intimidation mm-hmm. or you can lead by empowerment. You can lead by, you know, there's ways to do it. And you can get similar results for at least a time. Mm-hmm. But wouldn't you all rather be happy at the end of the day? Slap each other on the back and say, wow, this is mm-hmm. a great day. Look what we accomplished. Right. Rather than just we did it. Now we go home. We'll be back in the morning to do it again. A good example. Uh, I did some freelance work for a company and I went into their headquarters and the CEO was kind of leading me around and telling me about the company. And we were walking around and he was introducing me to this person, that person. And I, I'm waiting for us to go find his office. But uh, we just sit down at a table and I said, oh, where's your office? He goes, well, I, I don't have one. You know, it ended up we didn't have enough space. And, uh, you know, I'm just in and out all the time anyway. And I think my people should be more comfortable. So I don't have an office. I just have a laptop wherever I go. Mm-hmm. And I thought, that's really cool. You know, that's- you think of like the traditional person who sits in their mahogany office, you know, all day. Right. So exactly. Uh, so next time you're in town, you need to come see our, our headquarters here because I'm actually officing with the Ross Group because they're going to do our construction. Mm-hmm. They said, hey, why don't you just come hang with us? Well, it's a whole cube world. And even the president, uh, Warren Ross, although he has a very large cube in a corner <laughs> of, of the thing, I mean he's still just there too with everyone. And he's got mm-hmm. people right across from him in their cubes right there with him and and so forth. And, and then we have these conference rooms, I said like the little fishbowl. But it, to do things like this, but it's really great. But it changes the whole atmosphere because we're all right. just in this together. We're one big party, just mm-hmm. making it happen. So it's cool. This is before they moved, but when I I did um, web design for the building that Seltzer Schaefer, yeah, that they used to be in, and oh yeah, the rest of this is the International Plaza building. Sure. Um, and every floor of that building was all segmented in offices and walls and stuff. And then you get to their floor, and it was just open. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, wow, that's really – this is amazing. This is completely different than anything else around here. I, I kind of liked it and you saw people talking and interacting and, and working and drawing together on big tables. And I, I yeah. like that collaborative atmosphere. Absolutely. It makes a huge difference. Change, that, that alone just changes the whole dynamic of an organization. I kind of want to make a, a habit of asking people when we talk to them, you know, we want to continually improve ourselves and learn new things. It's fun. Are there any books or things that you're looking at recently that are getting you excited that you're – you're learning or have learned before. I'm a huge, of course, NPR fan, uh, National Public Radio, uh, whether you're listening to Diane Raymer or whatever. I, I think listening to uh, other other leaders, other professionals, whether it's in your various area or not, or your field of, of interest and work is good because you just pick up even from them speaking or listening to them talk or, or watching them react uh, to other people. Uh, you learn things from that. So that's that's how I spend most of my when I'm just doing that. Just I'll just start looking. What's who's doing what now? What's Mark Zuckerberg's saying now? What's he doing on this? You know, and just and just to sort of just to sort of hear other people doing those mm-hmm. kinds of things. That's that's my main. That's my main for that kind of information. Mm-hmm. Do you have any books you'd recommend? Yes, actually, there is one. There is one that you should that I'm sure every one of your listeners and viewers have, have done. But uh, Benjamin Zander, The Art of Possibility. Mm-hmm. Have you read it? I have not read it, but I will now. You, Okay, you need to read it. Ben Zander, Z-A-N-D-E-R. He is the conductor also of the Boston Symphony Orchestra. And he goes around lecturing and so forth. 
and I and I've read his book a couple of times, and I've gotten to hear him speak a couple of times. But it's that it's it's not it's not creativity; it's possibility. What is the art of possibility? What is it possible for you to do? It's like if you believe you can do something, you can do it. It's it's that whole empowering kind of thing for how we look at the world. And you can learn music, you can learn dance, you can learn algebraic logarithms, you can do all of this if and just know that you can, and and it will teach you how to do it. You can go learn how to do these things. And so the art of possibility. So I think that it's great for leadership. It's great for how, how, do, how you just live your life day to day. It's not a super lengthy book, but it's, it's a good one. A lot of good, a lot of good messages. Well, do you have anything else to add? Anything you're working on or anything you're excited about? I appreciate the opportunity to share with you today. I, uh, I think, I, I think if there's one, if there's one message, uh, that we haven't exactly touched on, but it's it's the whole idea of being true to yourself. Hmm. When you when you talk about making choices about what you're going to do or how you're going to do it or where you're going to go, do, you know, follow as as trite as it sounds or contrived, uh, follow your heart. Do that which you have passion for, which you believe mm-hmm. in, uh, where you can where you think you can really make a difference. Because if you bring that level of passion, uh, it will show, and people will get. Ex- excited because you're excited, and people will want to follow you or be a part of what you're doing because of, of the energy that you're bringing to it. So you have to, you have to at least have a love and an interest and, a, and an engagement with what you're doing. Otherwise, you're just punching the clock, and you're miserable, and everyone else will see it too. Mm-hmm.